The word of God from Psalm 24, the King of Glory. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, the God of, of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the Lord of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Rachel, for reading that for us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I encourage you to turn in there to Psalm 24. There's also some physical copies under the seat in front of you, and I did not grab the page number uh, before I got up here, but flip that open to about the center of your Bible. You should be somewhere in the Psalms and can move backward or forward to Psalm 24. I think it's appropriate that we pray once again just briefly as we open God's Word. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not yet, make us. By your grace and for your eternal glory, so that we might truly reflect the Lord Jesus as a church. In his name we pray, amen. They dropped the chest without ceremony and skedaddled back towards Philistine, towards the coast, hidden just behind the hill nearby. A small group of Israelites watched their enemies leave the area. The Philistines now were almost out of sight, and they were thrilled to be rid of the cursed chest that they had just dropped and left in the dust. It had brought them nothing but disaster ever since they had captured it from the Israelites in battle. Wherever the chest went in the land of the Philistines, plagues followed. Mice destroyed the land, death swept across entire villages, tumors would grow on the populations of entire towns where this chest was kept. Even Dagon, the false god that they worshipped, was judged, so it seemed, by the presence of this chest. They took it to his temple and left it there, and the next morning he was face down in front of the chest. So they put him back up and 
The next morning, he was face down in front of that chest, and both his arms were broken off, and his head was broken off. What was this chest? What's a great question, and I'm glad that you asked. The chest was the Ark of the Covenant. See, hundreds of years earlier, God had instructed Moses to have this Ark built, this gold chest that was carried by gold poles. In this chest, initially, were kept the two stone tablets upon which God had written the Ten Commandments. It was a testimony of the presence and the covenant of God. It was more than just a storage chest. It did symbolize the very presence of God. It was considered to be the very throne of God in the tabernacle, the house of God at this point in history. Second Samuel chapter 6 describes the ark in these terms. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Those two angelic figures carved in gold on the top of the chest. And God had instructed the Israelites to follow the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and God promised to give them victory over all of their enemies. And he did, time and time and time and time again. But then Israel got their first king, and he was rebellious against the Lord. And so God allowed this king, King Saul, to be killed in one of these battles, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. But the Philistines had had enough of the turmoil of the chest. They were tired of a disgraced idol and tumors and mice. And so the enemies of God had had enough. They returned the chest to Israel. So the next king, King David, made plans to return that chest from the borders of Israel back to Jerusalem, where it was meant to be in the tabernacle. And it would seem that Psalm 24 was written by David for the people to sing as the Ark of the Covenant approached Jerusalem. Psalm 24 corrected all of the false assumptions about God that the Israelites had made. They had dishonored God in how they handled the chest. They had dishonored God in thinking they could manipulate the presence of God to bring about the blessing of God. And so Psalm 24 addresses these misconceptions. So we could say the psalm is making this case. In order to welcome the king and worship the king rightly, you must know the king truly. Seems pretty basic, right? Psalm 24 is for us an introduction to the king, not the king of Israel, but to the true king, the king of the universe, the one who sits enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant, the one who blesses his people, the king who could then fight against his people as they rebelled against him. The same king who could then fight against their enemies as they mishandled his throne. 
the king who would then bless his people again as they submitted to him. So Psalm 24 breaks down into three stanzas. And these three stanzas give us three realities about this king as it introduces us to him. First, his realm. Second, his rule. And third, his glory. Let's use that as our roadmap to study Psalm 24. First reality, the realm of the king. Verses 1 and 2 tell us about his realm. Look down at verse 1 with me. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. The inhabited world belongs to this king. Why? Well, the verse says very simply because he made it. It makes sense that the God who raised the land from the waters at creation is the God to whom the land and the seas belong. But this claim to universal sovereignty at this point in history was scandalously countercultural. Unlike today, everyone at this time that Psalm 24 was written, everyone believed in the unseen supernatural realm. And everyone worshipped some personal god, some deity. But these gods were limited by geography. Think of it like the jurisdiction of state police today. The state police of Tennessee have no jurisdiction in Georgia. The state police of Alabama don't have jurisdiction in Tennessee. State police have their authority bounded by geography. And the gods of the enemies of Israel, those gods who were empowered by unseen demonic spirits, their power was limited by geography. So you worship the god of your land, not the god over there in Jerusalem. These gods had their boundaries of influence set. Not so Yahweh. The king. His realm, his boundaries extended to include the whole earth and everything in it, all of its inhabitants. I remember the first time, the exact time and place that this reality settled into my soul and really hit me. I was sitting in a Bible college class. I don't even remember the class exactly, but the professor was telling how he wanted his young boys to think about the world as created and owned and belonging to God. And how did he go about doing that? Well, he trained his boys not to needlessly and intentionally crush ants on the sidewalk. Ants, you say? Yes, ants. Why? Because ants belong to God. They're his creatures. They're not ours. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't keep me from using a pest control company to get rid of the, psalm, uh, the palmetto roaches in the home we rent. I will do that 
gladly. But maybe the fact that God owns creation, that this is God's world and we're supposed to steward it, maybe that fact should keep us from acts of cruelty and destruction for the sake of destruction. Like stepping on insects simply for the fun of it. But it's not just a place that's His, His realm. It's not just creatures. His realm includes all people. And this is hard for us to accept as citizens of a country founded on the ideas of freedom and individualism. But we are actually not our own. Now, that's not popular to say, and it might be even harder to believe, but you don't belong to you. I don't belong to me. We live in the realm of God. We are part of God's realm. We were given life. It's ours to steward. It's not ours to do whatever we want with. So we're stewards of ourselves our bodies, our intellect, our emotions. So how we live and operate in God's realm with the bodies God has given to us and the minds and souls that God has given to us, it matters. And how we treat one another as fellow image bearers of God who themselves are not themselves, owned by themselves. It matters how we treat one another. If it matters that we care for and steward God's earth as His realm, then it matters greatly that we care for the most vulnerable, the unborn, the poor, the homeless, those with severe mental challenges, the aged, the infirm. Why? Because the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. The realm of the king is universal. I wonder, do you acknowledge that? Second reality, the rule of the king. The rule of the king. Look down at verse 3. You'll notice that David references the holy place. The holy place was found in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this beautiful and intricate mobile tent made for worship, designed after God's commands and instructions. It symbolized the very presence of God among His people. In fact, the very Shekinah glory, it was called, the Shekinah cloud, glory cloud of God would descend upon this tabernacle and enter the holy of holy places within this tent. God's presence dwelt there. And David asked the question, who is spiritually able to stand in the presence of God welcomed by him? You may recognize these verses and this idea from Psalm 15 that we looked at the very first summer or Sunday of this summer in this series. Here in Psalm 24, King David summarizes God's expectations by pointing to three parts of our body three parts to indicate the whole. He references our hands for what we do, the actions we take. 
he references our heart, which was understood to be the seat of the intellect in the ancient Near East. So the heart for what we think about. And he references our mouths for what we say and how we say it. Action, thought, and speech. David is saying that God requires moral integrity in all of these areas. A fully and thoroughly integrated life of holiness. Look at verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. That is the one, David is saying, who can stand in the presence of God. There's something within our hearts, though, that pushes against rules and expectations, isn't there? Even if we're a rule follower, they are restrictions by definition, so we find them burdensome. And the air we breathe in our culture tells us not to allow anyone to tell us what we can or can't do, right? Don't let anyone tell you who you can or can't be, what you can or can't do. And we've all been affected by this. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in the water that we drink. So you may be thinking, how can a being who restricts what I want to do, how can that being be good? How can he be for me? How can he be worthy of worship? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions in return. Honestly, truthfully, would you rather live in a world where leaders stir up people to engage in selfish, wicked and violent acts? Would you rather live in a world where leaders encourage you to cultivate a perverse, debased, twisted mind? Would you rather live in a world where leaders expect you to embrace half-truths as if they were whole truths or embrace falsehood entirely? Would you rather live in a world where leaders expect people to break their commitments and promises and oaths? And I hope your answer is no, of course not. You don't want to live in that sort of world, and yet, isn't that the sort of world that we live in? Why? Well, it's because people have rejected the good and gracious rule of God. The king who calls us to the exact opposite of this. The king of Psalm 24, it, Psalm 24 is the film negative counterpart to this sort of world. He calls his followers to selfless and loving acts to pure and clean minds that dwell on beauty and goodness and purity. He calls us to faithful and true speech and worship. And if you're not a Christian, consider this. What if the expectations of the king are actually intended for your good? Good. 
and for the well-being and flourishing of humanity. And consider this, perhaps the king whose realm is this world has a way of ruling that truly cultivates human flourishing. And perhaps the messaging of, the moral messaging of Hollywood, perhaps the marketing campaigns of our culture, perhaps perhaps the calls to absolute personal autonomy in our world, Perhaps these are all actually calls away from a life that contribute to human flourishing. Perhaps they're actually a call to a way of life that doesn't contribute to the progress of civilization, but to the very downfall of human dignity. Maybe they degrade you as a person. Maybe they devalue us as humans. Maybe we're being sold a bill of goods that will take us further and further away from the person that you want to be, making you more anxious, making you more discontent, more selfish, more prideful, more angry, more greedy, more frustrated, more empty. Because if we're not following the rule of the king, there is no other alternative. It is the opposite of human flourishing to avoid the rule of the king. So here, right now, hear this. In these moments, this king is graciously graciously beckoning to you. He is inviting you to a way of living life under His rule, the way of living that you were meant to live. And He invites you to follow Him in faith and repentance for your good and, yes, for His glory. Notice how this middle section ends in verses 5 and 6. The translation in front of us might lead us to believe, lead us to read into these verses a works-based righteousness, a self-salvation, if you will. Do this and receive righteousness. But if we read it that way, we're missing the prior reality. David described Yahweh already as the God of his salvation. Yahweh the king is the deliverer of the one who lives this way. He, having first delivered, God then blesses and rewards. The Net Bible helps us with this translation, verses 5 and 6. Such godly people who live this way are rewarded by the Lord and vindicated by the God who delivers them. And who are these people? It goes on, such purity characterizes the people who seek his favor, Jacob's descendants who pray to him. So do you see what the psalmist has just done? He's just indicated what Paul will say and confirm later in the New Testament. True Israelites, the true people of God, the true descendants of Jacob, as this verse puts it, are those who seek God's favor and live in purity. So Christian, hear this. This verse describes you 
as a follower of God. If you're seeking God's favor through the Lord Jesus Christ, your King, then you're one of the godly ones whom God will reward. You will be vindicated by the God who has delivered you. Our culture will never vindicate you, so don't look for vindication and affirmation out there. But that's okay. We have all the affirmation and vindication we need in Christ. You have been, in the words of Paul, grafted in to the true Israel. Jesus perfectly, on your behalf and in your place, Christian, fulfilled all of these requirements of absolute, absolute moral integrity so that you and I might find a welcome in God's presence. So that we can stand in the holy place of God, with God, with His blessing. And then, He calls us from that place to live a life of moral integrity. And he enables us to cultivate a life of moral integrity by his Spirit. And so, Christian, united to Christ and empowered by the Spirit, you are, or rather should I ask it as a question, are you pursuing this sort of integrity in your actions, in your thought life, in your entertainment, in your speech, in what you say, and how you say it, in your social media communication? Are you a person cultivating moral integrity under the rule of this gracious king? The realm of the king is universal, so will you acknowledge it? The rule of the king is good, so will you submit to it? The final reality of this psalm the glory of the king. The glory of the king. Let me move into a moment of transparency here and vulnerability. I've had a couple of nicknames throughout my life, and I'm not going to share all of them with you. But there's something interesting about nicknames. They usually indicate a degree of familiarity and relationship between two people. There's one nickname I was called quite frequently as a child, given to me by my dad, and now only a small handful of people use it, people who know me well and love me dearly. It's special, unique to me. So, Elizabeth and my dad use this particular nickname at times. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I will tell you a different one. My grandmother on my dad's side had a nickname for me. That's her on the screen. She passed away quite a few years ago now. And I'll tell you the nickname, but you can't call me this, all right? Let this be my safe space for just a moment. This was between my grandma and me. Apparently, at some point, I toddled up to her when I could barely walk and hardly speak, and I told her, I'm Skeezix. So from that day on, my grandmother called me nothing but Skeezix to the point that this picture was taken. She signed all her cards or addressed all her cards to me to Skeezix. 
Here in Psalm 24, we have a unique, special name given to God. It is found nowhere else in the Scriptures. It's used of him five times in this psalm, and you heard it as Rachel read it for us. It's the title, The King of Glory. In using this title, the author is being quite familiar with God. You see, God had not revealed himself by this title as the King of Glory, like he did Yahweh, the name Yahweh to Moses. But knowing what he knows of God, David says, This is who my God is. He is the King of glory. The glorious King. What is true glory? We're ignorant of true glory today. What makes someone glorious? Someone weighty? What makes someone substantial? inherently so. Well, in our world today, we think if someone's music is popular, or if they have a lot of followers on social media, or if they have a lot of money, or if their platform is bigger than ours, or if they are displaying incredible skills honed and on display for our entertainment, we tend to think that those individuals are glorious even if we wouldn't necessarily use that word. And so we're ignorant of the source of true glory. We fail to appreciate the glory, the weightiness, the splendor of God himself. And in that, we are like the Israelites before us, who failed to recognize that they were dealing with, or rather that, whom they were dealing with when it came to God was one who was sovereign over all, who was inherently glorious and perfectly holy. We underestimate, confuse, and are ignorant of true glory. Paul Tripp says this, Sin makes us glory thieves. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, or a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things He's given us to love people, we use people to get the glory we love. Sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. But there is only one stage, and it belongs to the Lord. The story of Scripture is the story of the Lord's glory. It calls me to an agenda that is bigger than myself. It offers me something that is truly worth living for. The Redeemer has come so that glory thieves would joyfully live for the glory of another. There is no deeper personal joy and satisfaction than than to live committed to His glory. It is what we truly need. So friends, picture this now. 
the procession is approaching the gates of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is at the head. It's being handled with reverence and awe. The trumpets are blowing. King David and the whole house of Israel are shouting. And as the ark of the Lord enters the city of David, King David, we're told, is leaping and dancing before the Lord. No shame for the king of Israel. He's glorying in the glory of God. So listen. Can you almost hear the entire congregation singing together? Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up or rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. You can hear in David's words and in the song of the Israelites an urgent desire to be in proximity to this King of glory. To welcome him, to be near him, to be in his presence. But that ark would be taken to the tabernacle. It'd be put in the holy of holy places. Later when the temple was built, it would be put into that holy of holiest places. And only once a year could one human being enter that room to be in the very presence of God, the high priest. We all feel this magnetic pull towards glory even in our Christian circles. If someone is well-known, a household name, then we want to be seen with them, right? We want to be in proximity to them. That's why people wait in line for hours in the United Kingdom to shake the hands of a royal. That's why you start to feel nervous around someone who's well-known, but you're still drawn inexplicably to be near them. That's why random strangers will stop other random yet well-known strangers on the street and ask for a picture of them, like I did in 2012 when I randomly crossed paths with Phil Fulmer, the former Tennessee Vols football coach. Hey, coach, can I have your picture? Do I know Phil Fulmer? No. Does Phil Fulmer know me? No but we're inexplicably drawn to glory. Why? We were hardwired that way. We were hardwired to be captured by the glow of glory. Sam Storm says it this way, I, you, we were made to be enchanted, enamored, and engrossed with God, enthralled, enraptured, entranced with God, 
enravished, excited, enticed by God, astonished, amazed, and awed by God, astounded, absorbed, and agog with God, beguiled and bedazzled, startled and staggered, smitten and stunned, stupefied and spellbound, charmed and consumed, thrilled and thunderstruck, obsessed and preoccupied, intrigued and impassioned, overwhelmed and overwrought, gripped and wrapped, enthused and electrified, tantalized, mesmerized, and monopolized, fascinated, captivated, exhilarated by God, intoxicated, and infatuated with God. That is what we were made for. Nothing less than the glory of God. So let me ask you, are you cultivating a way of living life that leans into the glory of this God. All of the tinsels and to- tinsel and toys and theatrics of the world will not satisfy your soul when you were made for glory. Only God can. But did you see the promise found in verse 7? Perhaps the most stunning portion of this song. If you welcome this glorious king, without qualification, without reservation. If you throw the gates of your heart open, what will happen? The king will come. He will enter. He will accept and receive your welcome. He will bless you with his presence. That's part of what makes him glorious. So are you cultivating a lifestyle as an individual and as a family that puts you regularly in proximity with the glorious king? Or maybe more in proximity to the alternate glories that are offered to us in a world of hedonistic pleasures? Does your personal walk right now indicate you desire his presence and fellowship? Or has some other reality captured your affections? This is why we come together on a Sunday morning in part. Part of our weekly call to worship is the call and response where the liturgy leader invites you to lift up your hearts to the Lord. And in unison, we respond, we lift them up. What are we doing when we say that? That is an invitation to God. We are inviting the King of glory to enter our souls and our hearts without obstacle, with a full welcome, to reign within us and be worshipped by us. And the promise of this text is, He willingly comes. Friends, we no longer have need of a tabernacle or a temple or the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, if the Ark were found today by Indiana Jones or someone else, it would merely be another museum object, nothing more. Why? Because it served its purpose. 
it was a symbol of the presence of God, and we no longer need the symbol. The presence of God has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the bearer of a better covenant than the chest that held the Mosaic law. He is the greater temple that was torn down in death and raised again the third day. This is the king of glory whom we worship. And in order to welcome the king and worship the king rightly, you must know the king truly. His realm is universal. His rule is good. His glory is extensive. And his name? (laughs) His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the King of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing him among us and so bringing your presence among us in his person. Further, thank you for sending your spirit so that right now in these moments, As we sit in prayer before you, your spirit is active at work and we are in your presence just as surely as if we were Old Testament Israel by the Ark of the Covenant. Father, may we worship you rightly. May we welcome you daily. May we enjoy your presence intentionally. So that more and more of our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers would be enraptured by the glory of our King. In His name we pray. Amen.